Welcome back to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where a current philosophy major, that's me and his former high school philosophy teacher, that's me, unpack a variety of big philosophical concepts in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Welcome to episode 19, where I'm happy to be talking with one of my philosophical role models and teacher from afar, Dr. Gregory Sadler. Dr. Sadler's videos on YouTube are the preeminent educational philosophy videos, no matter what your experience is, and I've learned a lot, and I'm still learning so much from his content. But, as always, before we dive into the conversation, Mr. Parsons, how are you doing? Well, as always, I look on the sunny side of life, and I'm doing great. (laughs) It's been quite a sunny week, past two weeks, hasn't it? Oh, man. You know... Well, I'll let you give the the weather update, but you know, as far as my life, which I know everyone is very concerned about, I have to tell you that I've taken up the sport of swimming. Isn't that exciting? (laughs) (laughs) You see, as a middle-aged man, I just can't let it all go. So, uh, but I've been running for so many years, I thought I'd try something new. So I'm, I'm learning how to swim. And it's like surprisingly difficult, actually. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I know how to swim, obviously. Well, not obviously. I suppose some people don't. <laughs> but like the pool that I go to is at this, at this gym near my house, and it's 25 yards in length. And like I get to the end of that thing, and I have to stop and take a break. <laughs> and most most of it's related to breathing. Like, like you know, before, I suppose, when I just swam for fun. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about like, you know, proper technique and like breathing out the side and then putting my head back down and then breathing out the side and and all that sort of stuff because I'm just in like a little pool in someone's backyard. <laughs> so, you know, you do 25 yards like that and it doesn't work very well. So, actually so a lot of the challenge has been figuring out how to breathe properly. But let's let us breathe in the cool October air. Uh, Andrew, <laughs> how are you? Well, over the past few weeks, I've just been just been busy. When this episode airs, I will have finished my LSAT. So in these past two weeks, I have been studying my butt off and just been just been super excited for that. I had to move it. I don't think I've updated. Yes, I don't think I've updated that in our past few episodes for some reason. Don't know why I haven't done that, but I moved it back because we had a little bit of craziness, which I did mention in one of our past episodes, but a little bit of craziness in the school. Um, so I moved my LSAT once again, but this is going to be the last time. Super excited about that. The class that teeing for is going well so far. Um, really enjoying that. And of course, the weather's slightly cooled down a little bit from what it was in the past few months. And we're finally getting some of that nice fall breeze um, and looking for a cooler time. So that's our weekly weather update as we normally do on open door philosophy. But <laughs> yeah, you should, uh, uh, you should go for a swim to, oh, my goodness. to alleviate some of your LSAT stress. You know, that's really funny that you, you mentioned the, the having to stop on both sides because last year, one of my friends who was a swimmer, they invited me to come swim with them. So I'm very much like you. I've, I've, I've 
<laughs> only time I've been swimming is when I do cannonballs into a pool right. um, and can push myself out. So when I was swimming, I was gasping at either sides and it was just not a, not a good time. You know, this is, this relates very, very funny though. Um, so the lane that was right next to me was my philosophy professor who was swimming. Oh, really? Um, his name's Charles Seward. He's an older gentleman. And he was just laughing, laughing me. It wasn't. It wasn't even funny. I was just, I was just shaking my head, and I'm sure he was disappointed in me. I'm that sure. Is our, that's our uh, philosophy in swimming. I guess he should teach that class. I would. I would definitely take it. You know. Well, first of all, I bet you that night he probably was sitting in his house, you know, reflecting on his day, and he's probably just thinking, like, "Oh man, I put that." <laughs> I put that youngster to shame in the pool. <laughs> but I'd like to suggest that swimming is the most philosophical exercise you can do. Mm, I don't know I about mean, that one. Well, you know, as opposed to, say, running or cycling, you know, when you swim, you're like entering an, another dimension. Right? It's like you can't even breathe in it because it's water. Oh, my goodness. Am I going too far with this? Uh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's time. Uh, in that case, I think it's time we move on with our conversation with Dr. Sadler. All right, everyone, welcome to the main portion of our episode where we're having our conversation with Dr. Sadler or Greg, as I'll try to call him throughout this episode. Dr. Sadler has been very influential in my life through the past few years when I've been in college. I've been watching a lot of his videos as supplemental material for all my classes. And um, even when some professors haven't made a lot of sense to me, um, I'm always, always counting on uh, his videos to um, get me more interested in the topic. And, and I've never been disappointed. So a little bit of background, Greg, I suppose you can stop me if I get anything wrong. But uh, Dr. Sadler is an adjunct professor in philosophies and humanities at the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design and is also a lecturer in philosophy and business ethics at Carthage College. He also runs a YouTube channel about philosophy, which I mentioned earlier. I think the channel name is, is just Greg, Gregory Sadler. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to come on and to uh, talk about the topics that, that you laid out because they, they are really important stuff. How do we get philosophy, which for the most part isn't something that we teach in you know K through 12 and that is often just sort of a, a throwaway class in, in college unless you're a major. How do, we, how do we get that stuff in front of more people? Yeah, so I, I guess before we start, I know Derek and I know a little bit about but. How did you get into philosophy um, when you first started out? Yeah, so that's that's kind of a it might be a bit of a demoralizing or misleading <laughs> thing for some of your listeners. It just randomly, um, I I was always interested in the things that would count as philosophy, but it wasn't pitched to me as philosophy. And when I was a kid, my my mom actually she would say, "Oh, you should be a lawyer because you love to argue with people." And so, you know, argument is part of philosophy, but I was also interested in what we can broadly call the history of ideas and philosophical themes in, in literature and some comparative religion stuff. And it was only when I got, well, I was in the army, actually, when I picked up a philosophy 
sort of textbook. I, I, I bought it at the PX and it was like philosophical questions or something. And it, it introduced you to some people. And I don't think it was particularly good. But then when I got out and I was uh, going to college, I was effectively first generation college because my, my mom did go to college, but she dropped out when she met my dad, who was going to UW-Madison. And he did finish college, but um, he, he died when I was 11. So, you know, very few people in my family had actually gone to college and nobody could give me any useful advice. But my mom was dating this guy who he'd been to college and he said, as soon as you get to college, you declare a major right away because then you're not just you know, some freshman who's lost in a sea of other freshmen. And so I looked down the list and I saw philosophy and I said, well, that sounds cool. I think I, I, I like that. So I'll, uh, I'll take that. You know, actually now thinking back on it, I, I did have a philosophy class in high school, but it was a religion elective and it was terrible. Just, just awful. <laughs> you know, the guy who was teaching it was, um, he, he didn't, you know, he, he said he wanted discussion, um, but he didn't really want discussion. He wanted us, he put stuff on the board and we were supposed to memorize that and put that on the test, you know? <laughs> and I, I remember giving an answer. This is almost one of the, the only things I remember from the class. He asked a question, if you were God, would you have made it difficult or easy for people to prove God's existence? And I, I wrote, I would have made it very difficult. And then I would have killed with a lightning bolt anybody who discovered the answer so as to keep the question open. And he got, you know, he got pretty mad at me doing that. He said, and I remember, he said, the, the, the question presupposes the class, meaning I was supposed to give whatever answer he had like given in, in the class that I wasn't paying any attention to because uh, it was so mindlessly boring. I was supposed to have put that as the essay answer. Um, in my own words, of course. So there was a little bit of, you know, leeway for creativity. And, uh, you know, if, if that had been my only connection with philosophy, I would say, oh, this is the most boring thing ever, right? So it's, it's good for you that you actually had a good teacher. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually, this is a bit of a digression, but I mean, that's that's something that's really important i think i have a video it's it's in this series that i i never really finished making i think it's called dr sadler's soapbox talks or something like that and it's a rant video where i came in kind of hot and uh, talked about something that was on my mind and it, and it was this because I, I think i got into a twitter tiff with somebody about um, what we call service classes and, and in college, service classes are those gen ed classes that you have to teach in different majors. So like if you're the math professor, it's basically like, you know, they'll call it something like math for non-majors, but the math people look at it like <laughs> math for dummies, you know. And <laughs> intro to philosophy and ethics and logic and critical thinking, those are service classes. And a lot of people, when they're teaching these, they don't take them that seriously and they talk about them like they're slumming. You know, I got I to gotta be down there with these rumdums who aren't majoring in philosophy. So why am I wasting my time on these people? And, and they don't realize that there's two things they don't realize. One is that this is really the only opportunity we have in an academic setting to 
be good spokespeople for the things that we care about. So if we think that ethics is important, like if you're teaching a business ethics class, a lot of people will say, oh, that's an oxymoron. You know, there's no such thing as business ethics. That's exactly the mindset that produces bad people in business. You know, you got to come in and say, listen, uh, you're going to face some tough ethical issues. Here's how we're going to approach these. I want this stuff to stick with you five years down the line. Let's figure out how to, how to do this. So, so you're a spokesperson for things. And the other thing is, if you come into a class and, and you have the attitude that, oh, I'm, you know, I'm wasting my time with you dummies, um, that, you know, students can figure that out pretty quickly and they don't like that. <laughs> You know, and then it produces this negative feedback loop. I I have so many peers who would say things like, I don't know why the students don't want to talk in class or, you know, they're not they're not turning in very good work or they don't seem very interested in the topics that we're discussing. And, you know, I'll ask them a couple. I'm not going to, like, get in their face or anything about this, but I'll ask them a couple questions like, well, how how are you teaching them? And, you know, how are you uh, approaching this material? And what examples do you use? And they'll say, I don't give them examples. They have to come up with those on their own. And I'll be like, oh, well, (laughs) that might be why you're having uh, some problems, you know. And so, you know, we have to generate instead this positive feedback loop. And it's not hard to do, I found. You just have to like care about your topic and be halfway competent in presenting it. Because you can always say like, oh, I, I I screwed this up. You know, I misspoke over here or I don't know this thing or I don't know. The text could be read multiple ways and students are cool with that usually. And, um, you know, be willing to meet students where they are. If you're if you got business majors, um, you know, maybe use some examples from business. <laughs> You know, if you have fashion majors, maybe use some examples from fashion. Uh, and, and then it generates this, this really nice virtuous circle where the students are cool with it and they want to know more and they start coming to office hours or perking up when you're in class and, and they actually want to, you know, ask you questions and then you're happy when you finish class, you're not just walking out of there demoralized or ticked off and, you know, and, and then that can happen not just in one class, but that can happen over and over again. It become it becomes your MO. And then other students say, Hey, take this person's class because it's not boring, you know, or you're, you're actually going to get something out of the, whatever you're paying for your class. You know, if it's a community college, maybe you're paying 600 bucks for that class. If you're at a uh, small liberal arts college, you might be paying 10 times that, you know? So students really, they, they should get something out of what they're paying tons of money for. Absolutely. And, and I heard you use the word care, and I think that's probably the most important thing. Like yeah. if you care, you know, everything else generally falls in line. That's a great point. And there's a lot of dimensions to care. There's like caring about your topic where you, you can care about your topic in a way that's counterproductive where you're like, everybody has to appreciate Plato. Not everybody's going to, you know, but that doesn't take away from, from Plato. And then there's like caring about your students as mm-hmm. people. And I think a lot of, I mean, it's tough to do in a class of like a hundred people if you got like a massive auditorium. But if you're doing a small section with 20 students, you should get to know who those students are as, sure. as much as they'll reveal to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, it can, there's other dimensions, I think, that could come in there. Um, care is almost like a, a muscle that it gets stronger the more that you use it. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so something I was thinking about when you were talking about care is, you know, why should students, I don't know how it is at your university, but why should students even want to take philosophy? Like, why is it even important in the first place? I know philosophy is a big yeah. branch, a big field. There's all sorts of reasons that you can give them, like on the first day of class, after they're actually in the class, that they will kind of get at first. And then if you're doing the work well, they'll, they'll get more by the end of the semester. So, you know, like, I guess one thing that you can say is philosophy is not the only place where you can kick ideas around and dig into them and debate them and, and try to see whether examples work. It's probably the freest discipline where you can do that. And that's, that's something that can be enjoyable and exciting for people, but it's also a, a super valuable skill. So like if you're going out into corporate world and you don't just want to be some drone in a cubicle or, you know, a manager who's never going to go any higher than manager, you, you really need these things that people call soft skills. And we, we use these, you know, metaphors like thinking outside of the box. No, I mean, you actually don't need to think outside of the box. You need to be able to think about, well, what box are you in and how much stuff is in the box and how do you arrange things within the box? And then, then you can start thinking outside the box after you, you do all that. And as it turns out, the kinds of things that we do in philosophy classes and the kinds of things that are modeled in philosophical texts are probably among the best for fostering those kinds of skills. And they don't do it in a, like a one-to-one -one way, which is often what's very frustrating for the administrators and the, the educational theory people looking in from the outside who want to say like, what, what's the outcome? What's the, the course outcome that's going to pay off from this? And, and, you know, and we can talk their lingo, which we have to do if we want to have any institutional presence. But there's also something more holistic going on. You know, yes. when when philosophy is being done well, if it's being done poorly, if it's um, just like a gotcha game, you know, like, let's see if we can find defeaters for this. And eh, now you're not going to get quite so much out of it. Or if it becomes like a matter of prestige, like who can talk about Nietzsche the coolest? Um, OK, <laughs> that's not going to get you that far either. But if you're, you know, if you're taking stuff that seems kind of like, oh, we've we've been there, done that, like Descartes med meditations. And you go through it carefully with students and you have them like sit down and read it and encounter the obstacles that they're inevitably going to run into and work past that stuff. It's, um, it can be really effective for, for fostering those sort of skills as well as learning content. Like you, you, you probably, sh if you want to be an educated person, you do got to know about this Descartes guy, you know, and not just the, the meme of, uh, you know, I think therefore I am and, and a couple jokes about that he stops thinking when he walks <laughs> into a bar, you know, um, you gotta, you gotta actually know what Cartesian dualism is or his thoughts about animals and, and machines and, and, you know, how we can differentiate AI from from a human being because he is talking about that in the the discourse. So you know you could you could pick that up with all sorts of other philosophers as well. I'll say another thing too. I don't expect a student in any one of my classes is actually going to care about every single philosopher that we're studying because that's unrealistic. Mm -hmm. it, it's sort of like um, throwing a bunch of random music at somebody and saying all of this is, <laughs> all of this are like hit songs. You have to love all of this. Well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Yeah. We, so we, should give, can... we should give Andrew our 80s heavy metal playlist. <laughs> <laughs> he might not like any of it. Though, yeah. 
<laughs> no, that's uh, that's a really. I mean, uh, all of that is really uh, just a fantastic way to summarize why students or anyone, frankly, should care about philosophy. Andrew, you're in a different place than than Greg and I. Why do you, as a someone in their very young twenties, why do you think people should care about philosophy? I think answers changed for the time that I've been studying. I think over the past two years or so after I found one professor who was very important to me, I think I started seeing philosophy as a way to live a a good life and to live better. So I think testing different ways to be fulfilled and have purpose in life is the way that I'm seeing philosophy is important to me. And I'm really fortunate right now to be TAing for this one class with this professor. It's um, you might be familiar with the stipend, Dr. Sadler, but it's it's a, um, a stipend from Notre Dame. They have a program oh, yeah. called Philosophy as a Way of Life. I I know about the program, um, but I haven't had any actual contact with them. Uh, yeah, but it, look, but it looks good what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, it's been we got trained a few weeks ago, and um, we're just. We started, uh, we're going to be starting our first discussion next week together, but I'm super excited for that because I think students, they seem very passionate from what I've just met mm-hmm. them and of course, very opinionated um, like like everyone. But I think it's going to be really fun to be taking uh, a bunch of students in a room who disagree with each other and we're all going to be trying to whittle down on how to live well and, and how our different experiences in life contribute to this very important question. Yeah. Yeah. That, that whole philosophy is a way of life movement, which isn't really something new. I mean, it's been there since the beginnings in, in both Western and non-Western philosophy. It's, it's something that I think a lot of academic philosophers are kind of distrustful of, but wrongly so, you know, because if you do want to reach students, that's, that's the way you do it. I mean, when I, when I teach um, Plato, I'm, I'm, often teaching Plato, you know, I'm teaching things like what are the forms and all that, but I'm also like asking them, well, well, how would you actually live this sort of thing out? You know, what would it mean to live like Socrates or to try to move yourself through dialectic to contemplation? Or if we're doing Aristotelian virtue ethics, I sometimes have students do experiments where let's try to cultivate a virtue for a month. You know, is it, <laughs> is it true that by doing this stuff, you actually That's start awesome. to become less, less vicious and more virtuous, you know, <laughs> and, and you can multiply this, you know, I mean, Descartes' meditations, to go back to it, as Pierre Adot pointed out, that is philosophy as a way of life. It's not just a set of, you know, mental experiments or, or things like that. It's supposed to be done in a contemplative way over, over time, not just taught as many of my colleagues do, teaching the first two meditations and then saying, all right, we're done with Descartes, you know? <laughs> So yeah, there's there's really something to that, and that you know, for me coming into philosophy without having an awful lot of academic background, I always read philosophers with an eye to how would you actually put this into practice? What do they what do they have to say to us? You know, and that I found that kind of put me at odds with a lot of my better educated peers who are sort of educated in like philosophy is this little game that we play. So, and actually I'd, I'd be kind of curious, uh, you know, 
you've got the student perspective. What about the other the other uh, instructor in the room? I mean, you, you, are you doing philosophy as a way of life with your students? Because you have a different kind of student too, you know, and, and you're getting them at a different age. Yeah, I do. Uh, one of the reasons I really enjoy teaching philosophy to 17 and 18 year olds is I feel like just developmentally as a human being, they're really beginning to ask some very serious philosophical questions. Uh, they're really yeah. grappling with them. And, you know, as a way to provide them some tools to at least begin to be able to address those questions in some way other than just kind of flailing your arms. Uh, that's one of the things I, I really enjoy about philosophy. And, you know, one of the questions kind of to your point, what I, what I wanted to, to ask is, you know, we, we literally just got, got done with Socrates the other day in class. And of course, you know, we all know Socrates that he did his philosophy in the Agora. Right. And, yeah. you know, that there's this notion of, you know, is, is philosophy for the people uh, or is philosophy for the academics? And I think this kind of gets to what you're talking yeah, about yeah. with this idea of is philosophy something practical in terms of how you should live your life or is it something different than that? You know, I'm reminded of this uh, thing that Epictetus says in his discourses because Epictetus talks about Socrates. He's a, you know, he, Epictetus is a Stoic philosopher, so you'd think he'd be talking a lot about Zeno. He talks about Socrates way more than he does Zeno or Chrysippus. And actually, he does talk about Chrysippus generally to say, oh, we've got all these great writings by Chrysippus. You think that you're a hotshot because you can explain <laughs> his discourse on that, but how do you actually practice it, you know? And when he talks about Socrates, he says, Socrates maybe got broke through to one out of a thousand people that he was talking to, but that didn't discourage him. And a lot of times we, you know, when we do experiments like, oh, can I like bring philosophy into the marketplace? And what would the marketplace be? Well, it's you know, the person on the bus or hanging out in a bar or, you know, going into businesses and explaining some things to them, maybe not even telling them that it's coming from Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas or whoever until they ask because you don't want to turn them off. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's doing that sort of thing. And you're probably not going to reach everybody. And if we make our criterion of whether we're, whether our ideas are any good or whether our approach is any good, that it like is going to catch on immediately, we're, we're setting ourselves up for a lot of disappointment. What matters is, is, oftentimes planting seeds. And we don't know what those seeds are going to lead to, but they they often you know produce fruit much later on down the line. There are some people who we reach right away. Oftentimes they've already had some exposure to the world of ideas and they're like, oh, this is cool stuff, you know, give me more. Um, but a lot of times it takes, you know, weeks or months or years before it pays off. And it's very unpredictable. Um, who is going to take up the ideas that we we give them and, and do something with them, you know? But Socrates kept at it. Yeah, sure did. You know, he, until yeah. they until they stopped him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also, an important yeah. lesson. <laughs> yeah, and, and and you know, we're fortunate that we live in in uh, a society for the most part where people won't do that to us. But you never know what's going to happen. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, we don't want to go down that road today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so something that I, I'm wondering too is you're, you're involved much more in the world of academia than either of um, us, but why is you were saying there like so your colleagues aren't interested in pursuing this 
or they're not very fond of philosophy as a way of life? Some are and some aren't. And I'll also say there's a third class of people who pretend that they are, but they're not really, you know? <laughs> um, so you got the people who will, 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 will classify these as like, don't get it and don't want to get it, claim that they get it, but don't really get it, and then get it and help other people get it, you know? So the people who do get it, there are plenty of them in academia. And, and like you pointed out, Notre Dame has an entire project, which is administered by academic philosophers who do get it. We can point to all sorts of people. Pierre Adot is the person who comes to mind all the time when people say philosophy is a way of life. But there are some really important people out there right now, some of whom I have as, as uh, friends and colleagues who are, are doing that. A great example, you were going to ask me later about Stoicism, John Sellers, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, he's, uh, somebody who's, who's walking the walk on that. Chris Gill, also involved in the modern stoicism project. Uh, Julia Annas, um, major virtue ethics philosopher. Margaret Graver. And you know, we could just go on, on and on down the line. Even people who don't use those terms, like Alistair McIntyre talks and said about tradition constituted rationality and inquiry. That's philosophy as a way of life, you know? Um, and, and I can tell you too, from having interacted with McIntyre in the past, he's, he's the real deal. He, he walks the walk as well as talks really? the talk. So you got people who are like all the way from like, you know, up in the, the stratosphere, um, all the way down to us, you know, working stiffs in the classroom <laughs> who are interested in philosophy as a way of life. I actually at Milwaukee Institute of Art and, Art and Design, I teach a class on that. We look at the Epicurean tradition, the Stoics, the Cynics, uh, utilitarians, uh, and then usually we pick some other thing to, to focus on as well. And the students love it. They, they really get into it, even though they don't have a, a philosophy background. So you got that. And then at the other end, you've got the people who are like, um, philosophy is not supposed to be practical. That's what makes it philosophy. And there's a lot of different ways in which this can be articulated. You know, the old notion of philosophy being the science of sciences and being the most abstract, I think that kind of fits into that. Sometimes it, it takes place because of a, a division between, well, there's, there's speculative philosophy, which is the real stuff, and then there's practical philosophy. <laughs> um, and then, you know, if you set things up in, in that way, then you, you're already prioritizing the speculative stuff. I, I will say, too, that the, the, the philosophers in the 60s, 70s, and 80s here in America and in, in Britain who construed philosophy as this, like, this, this thing that was for the smart people and it, it wasn't supposed to have any practical effects or applications unless it was existentialism. The people who did that really screwed the discipline over because that sort of stance of like, oh, you know, you're not really bright enough to get this. Go over to economics or business <laughs> or something if you want to, you know, talk about these practical matters or city planning. When the money started going dry, and people are saying, well, what do you philosophers actually do? What, what, what do you provide in terms of goods and services? They didn't have any answers, you know? And unfortunately, they dominated a lot of the departments, and we're still seeing the effects of that today. But then you have that, that class of people who talk the talk but don't walk the walk when it comes to philosophy as a way of life or virtue ethics or any of the other things that are connected with, with this. And they're, they're sort of taking up space that could be used by the people who are doing the real work, 
and they often, you know, they, they may not know exactly what they're doing. They, it may just be a coincidence in their minds that nothing ever comes of all their talk of philosophy as a way of life. But the proof is in what you actually do. You know, do you start initiatives? Do you go out to people who aren't, you know, strictly speaking within the classroom and give a talk or do a workshop? Do, do you or, sit in the park with a table and with a sign that says, change my mind? Yeah. <laughs> do you know there's a, there's actually a meme of, of me uh, doing was, that. <laughs> that's that great. Put out there. And, and it says, and it's not completely accurate, but but it's, it's kind of accurate. It says like every philosopher has something worthwhile to say, you know, you just got to like figure out what it is, change my mind. And, and I don't think that's actually true. I think there are some philosophers who are just complete garbage, but there, there's not many, you know, right. I mean, I'm willing to teach people who I totally disagree with in my classes because I think, well, there's at least some ideas that are, that are cool to kick around. But yeah, that, that, I mean, having a ask a philosopher booth at a farmer's market would be really put would be in, really interesting. You know, yeah. 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 Or, <laughs> or at a state fair or something. Yeah. I mean, you would get some crazy questions at a state fair, probably more than at a <laughs> farmer's market, right? But, um, or a, imagine a county fair. Nothing more. Right? You can talk about the ethics of animal treatment. <laughs> That might not go that over, might not go over well. so well. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We'll leave Peter Singer yeah, out of it. <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were mentioning like what happened to Socrates. That's right. You might get Socrates if you do that. That's right. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, every, every now and then philosophy sort of enters the popular culture. Uh, whether that's through movies yeah. or books or, or something like that, you know. Recently, obviously, the Good Place is a great example of philosophy entering uh, the, the the sort of, I guess, pop culture area, media, yeah, media, culture, yeah, say, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, given given that that occurs on occasion, you know, are there pros and cons that come with that, or maybe you know, are there misconceptions that arise from from that, or is it ultimately a good? Well, I think on the whole, it's it's more good than bad, right? <laughs> I, I actually couldn't watch The Good Place. I watched the first three episodes and I was like, ah, this is, and I've been told it's it's gotten better, you know, but the treatments of stuff that I've seen in like little snippets, you're like, well, this is sort of like, this is to philosophy what um, pop parodies are to actual music. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's entertainment, you know. Exactly. That's it. And, and so they rely on all these tropes, you know, as a matter of fact, there's this, this, this show out now that I'm, I'm not going to watch, but people are going crazy about on Twitter called the chair and they're going crazy because they're like, this is totally unreflective of academia as 99% of us know it. You know, why would Hollywood or whatever, you know, Netflix, the, the, the content producers, why would they put this out? Well, because that's what writers think academia is like, because they don't have any, any real contact with it and they don't talk to actual academics. And I, I think, you know, a lot of a lot of the shows that are out there are, are kind of like that. Usually we, we see the best philosophy being done when people are not deliberately going about it and putting it on chalkboards or, or things like that. But they're they're, you know, they're writers who are really thoughtful. They're not going for like the low-hanging fruit of trolley problems or things like that. Um, now, all that said, you know, if if the good place 
gets people more interested in philosophy and they're not just going to stick with that and meme about it and bring that up in class, but actually like read, you know, when it comes to the trolley problem, you should read Philippa Foote and, and uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson and, and then go from, from there. Right. Um, that's really great. That's awesome when that happens just as much as if like, I don't know, um, some celebrity um, like MC Hammer, right? He's, he, he's, he gets involved in, on Twitter. He did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and talking about philosophy stuff. And he, he might actually know quite a bit. I don't, I don't know because I don't know the guy. And he could clue people into it. And I, I think that's good. But, but we always want it to be yeah. something that it doesn't just, people don't just stick with that. They move into more substantive things, more substantive engagement. So, uh, you know, I, I guess probably a lot of people look down completely on that and they're like, oh, that's just, you know, popularization and debasing it and all that. Um, you know who I think actually has a, a bigger beef with the entertainment industry is mathematicians because, mm. man, do they get misrepresented. The physicists too, right? You <laughs> right. know, it's all, it's all basically people who are have no social skills in front of a chalkboard having breakthroughs and stuff <laughs> like that. And that isn't, that isn't the way it works. <laughs> right. They don't show you boring committee meetings and hanging out with colleagues and, you know, chitter chattering about things for six years before you, you finally see dimly the breakthrough that, that you might be able to turn into a paper. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I was watching um, this show called Young Sheldon the, a few weeks ago and they have basically this super smart young kid and he goes off to college and he has to take a philosophy class. And they present this, the teacher as some hippie um, <laughs> with like a shaved head smoking uh, in the corner of the room and um, talking in the soothing voice and asking questions. And, you know, <laughs> I think I've never seen anything like that in any of my classes. And you're certainly not like that from, <laughs> from, from what I've seen. Of you. Yeah, I'm more high. So, so. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, I did. I did have a professor in grad school who kind of fit the bill on that. Although he, he didn't really? smoke in the classroom because we couldn't do that by then. <laughs> but he was real. He spoke in a real soft voice. He was the the Hegel, Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard guy. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, and he, um, I did see him get angry a few times, but uh, that was with colleagues. Most of the time, when you talk with students, he just—he was very. It was almost soporific to to hear him talk. You know, mm. um, there's actually there's there's we could talk about media representation of philosophers. Like there's that Kevin Sorbo in the God Is Dead series, philosophy teacher, and I, I don't know anybody like that. You know, but I guess that's like a a certain evangelical viewpoint on what what philosophy professors must be like. You know. Um, what, are, what are some other famous ones? Well, I, th I think, you know, outside of like specific identifications of a character that is a philosopher, you also kind yeah. of have the trope of someone who's just wise, like 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 the wise True. person, yeah, yeah. you know, which kind of fits that bill too. <laughs> you know, they're always just very, well, Stoic's probably not really the best word to use there. But, they're always quiet. Yeah, you know? they're just they quiet. They only say a few things, you know? Yes, they're very cryptic. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm interested real quick. I'm wondering when y'all tell someone when you meet them for the first time and you say I'm a I'm a philosophy professor, I'm a philosophy teacher, what's their first reaction? Well, I used to say that and I, I don't so much anymore. Um I actually tell them that I'm a philosopher in private practice. 
Um, because technically, I mean, I do have professor rank at, at, um, my ad I'm, I'm they have regular professor stuff. And then if you're an adjunct, you're an adjunct lecturer, adjunct assistant professor, adjunct associate and adjunct full professor. So I can say I'm a professor without lying, which wasn't the case before, but then it was the case even before that. Cause I was a, a assistant professor for ball state and for Fayetteville state university. Then I would actually say I'm a philosophy professor and people would, you know, they had a whole variety of reactions. Sometimes they'd say, what's the meaning of life? Or they'd ask other questions <laughs> like that. Sometimes they just kind of look at you and then like walk away. Sometimes they'd ask, you know, oh, that sounds interesting. You know, where do you teach and all that? But now, I mean, I, I do teach as an adjunct, but I've had my own business for 10 years. And the YouTube thing is the content production, but I also do ethics consulting and speaking engagements and philosophical counseling and all that sort of stuff. So I, I do say I'm a philosopher in private practice. And then they usually say, well, what is that? You know, and then I, <laughs> you know, I, I don't try to explain the whole thing to them because that would make their eyes glaze over most often, especially at like, you know, networking things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell them a little bit about what I do. And if they're, they're interested in it, then we'll, we'll talk more about it. But I'm an outlier, you know. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not your usual philosophy instructor who's trying to make it just teaching philosophy in an academic mm-hmm. setting. I, I feel kind of bad for some of my friends and colleagues who are doing that because if you have like a full-time gig, that's great. But you may not hold it for for a long time. And where people are firing professors, I saw the guy who hired me at Carthage. They phased out the entire philosophy department so that without saying the word financial exigency, they could fire a bunch of professors. And that's what they did. And that's that's pretty common these days. If you're an adjunct and you're only teaching philosophy, you're not doing anything else on the side, you don't have any benefits, um, you're not getting paid very much, you have to go from place to place to place, and you don't have any job security, which is, you know, makes for a lot of anxiety, which philosophy can help with a, a, a bit, I suppose. But um, it's not, you know, doing mindfulness stuff isn't going to get you a job. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, you know, long story short, I used to say I'm a philosophy professor when I'd introduce myself. And now I have a bit more complicated conversation with people. Yeah. For, for myself, Andrew, you know, the usual adult dinner party question of, you know, what do you do? Yeah. I, I usually just say I'm a teacher. And I don't go into like, I also administrate this advanced academics program and blah, 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 blah. But, but then usually like, oh, well, what do you teach? And I'm like philosophy. And they're like, oh, so you teach at the university. I'm like, no, I teach actually high school. And that's usually an interesting response yeah, because yeah. That, that's, that's actually not very typical to have a high school philosophy program, especially a two-year high school philosophy program. And so, so that usually creates some interesting conversation afterwards. Uh, sometimes as to why that is, but also sometimes when people find out I, I teach philosophy, one of one of two general reactions. One is they just totally stop asking anything along that particular <laughs> line of discussion, right? They're like, "Oh, well, let's move on." Yeah, um, yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> or the other one is, uh, you know, they start asking me like, "Well, like, where did the universe come from?" And, you know, so that's kind of fun, too. I remember one time I was at a conference for uh, I I teach in the International Baccalaureate program. So I was at a conference for IB teachers and all kinds of disciplines were there, you know, English Mm -hmm. and Spanish and 
whatever else when we get in this big ballroom setting and you know you kind of have like the philosophy table over here and uh you know it was just really interesting you know you you get the elevator conversation with people sometimes because it was in a hotel like literally an elevator conversation and they just kind of start spilling their existential concerns to you nice (laughs) well look man uh i'm just here to to make sure you know i'm calibrating my essay grading really well (laughs) (laughs) so that's kind of my reaction uh andrew you know you're you're a philosophy major and classics major so what is your reaction to people uh, when when you tell them what you're majoring in, <laughs> well, I, I'll also go with one of two reactions. <laughs> first, first one is um, like, uh, how are you going to survive after yeah, college? Yeah, I remember um, that. that. Sure, that's a that's a big one. And then second, people usually tr- either people will run away, kind of like you said, or they'll they'll kind of try to um, ask me a big question. And I think it's funny that we all have have had people like do that to us. And I think that's just um, that's kind of going along with the stereotype, I guess, of philosopher, or philosopher in training or philosophy professor or whatever. It's just yeah. like, like, like I, I don't know um, how the universe was made. Like, I, I don't, I'm, I'm still working on that one too. Did something you come know, from nothing? Come on, Andrew. One of the <laughs> funniest reactions that I remember was in grad school. And um, there was this, we, so Southern Illinois University had a major law school as well as uh, you know, all mm-hmm. these other grad programs. And one of the guys that I was friends with in the philosophy program, he was dating uh, a law student. And we were, out, we were at some like concert or some, something, right? We're all, we're all just out there having a good time. And she asked, um, she asked me, what are you majoring in? What are you studying? And I said, philosophy. And she like, you could see this look of disgust on her face. And she said, oh, another one of those sophists. And I was, and oh, I was like, well, wow. first of all, you know, when we think of sophists, we think of law school people. I mean, kudos not, not for knowing us. the term. You know. <laughs> exactly. And, but it was such, you know, it, it, it wasn't just like a, a random put down. She was like, and she was dating, you know, a guy in philosophy. So I don't, maybe he was uh, getting on her nerves or something. Um, but that, that visceral reaction, you know, you philosophy so people, you know, it was like, it was like we were, um, you know, working for the mob or something, you know? <laughs> oh man, that's good. Yeah. That's good. I like to ask one for for all our guests. Okay. If you could recommend, say, this is someone's first podcast that they listen to about philosophy, somehow, how would you recommend that they learn more about it? Maybe a book, uh, YouTube videos, of course, uh, yours. You can feel free to plug yours or, or just anything. Yeah, I mean, as as uh, we were talking about before, you know, like with respect to music and the amazing set of resources that are out there because of the internet. I think you can say something similar uh, with philosophy. And so I'll, I'll say a few things. One is um, you never want to deprive yourself of the opportunity of grappling with the actual text. So you don't just want to watch videos on or podcast, listen to podcasts about Plato or you know read Wikipedia stuff. You want to actually read Plato. And you're missing out on something if you, if you don't do that. And one of the things you're missing out on is you don't know whether the people that are telling you stuff are actually giving you a line of BS or not because you haven't actually looked at the, 
the the original texts. And it doesn't mean you have to like, you know, read every single thing Plato wrote and study it so that you can regurgitate answers. But you should, you know, you should read certain texts. And um, the cool thing is they're all basically available for free on the internet, you know, in lots of different Mm -hmm. translations. So there's certain philosophers that you can point at that we often talk about as a canon. And, and, you know, I'm a big fan of an expanded canon. So somebody who I'll put in a plug for, who I'm a big fan of, is Mary Wollstonecraft, you know, uh, first-generation feminist author, um, businesswoman, writer, died far too young. People know her mostly as the, the mother, although she didn't do much mothering because she died uh, soon after childbirth of, of uh, Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. But Wollstonecraft as well, reading in her own right. So, you know, there's the original texts and... Then, you know, if you're, if you're reading Plato and you're having trouble, you can go to a wide range. If we're just talking about videos, you can go to things that are like, you know, five minute little clips where it's very jokey and there's lots of animations and you can, you can learn something from them. They might be wrong, uh, depending on who, who produced them. Uh, but if you're reading the original text, then you can say, well, this, this clearly isn't right or this does seem on point. And then you can go all the way over to like, you know, hour long lectures from a classroom where the professor is an expert on that topic. And then there's all sorts of things in, in between. And my own uh, videos are, you know, more, I would say, on the professorial end than the, the popular end. Um, and I, I try to, you know, present things. As, as clearly and as accurately as possible and without, you know, mixing my own beefs with certain philosophers in. So like if you watch a Nietzsche video, I think Nietzsche is wrong about a lot of stuff, but I'm going to present it as if, you know, I want to present the ideas so then people can, can you know, think about them on their own. Uh, podcasts, there's a lot of really cool podcasts out there. Uh, one that I'm a big fan of is the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, which is an amazing project. I remember when it started. I love that podcast. Like, what, 11 years ago, you know? And I was like, they're never going to be able to bring this off, but they're, they keep grinding away at it, you know? Um, and there's, you know, I've, I've actually been taking some of my videos and turning them into podcast episodes because people pestered me about that so much. And there's, there's other good things that are sort of like philosophy adjacent. Like I'm a fan of the Southpaw podcast. Sam Yang is the, uh, the main guy with that. And that's about, uh, mostly about martial arts, but it's, he talks about history, he talks about philosophy, and he does it from a leftist perspective, which is, uh, definitely a side to it that, that's, that's missing because a lot of martial arts things are pretty hard, right? So there's, there's, you know, the, those sort of resources. There's tons of websites out there. Wikipedia used to be terrible. Uh, when, when, you know, I was for a professor, we would tell students not to use it. Now we say, okay, don't use it as your primary source, but it's, it's not bad, you know? And then there's, you know, these internet encyclopedias of philosophy. One called that, and then the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. So there's, there's all this great stuff out there. And communities. I mean, you can find uh, Facebook groups or Yahoo discussion things. There's all sorts of other communities. Um, I'll, I'll say, you know, the, the modern Stoic community. There's um, some cool events coming up. This, the, do you mind if I plug them? No, please do. Sure, <laughs> please. Every yeah, year we Stoic have Stoic Con, right? There's Stoic Con, which mm-hmm. which I'm actually one of the organizers for this mm-hmm. year, and that's October 9th. and it's a donation. 
thing. You, you there's you know for the ticket because it's online, we decided to make it as accessible as possible. People can give what they want, and they can hear experts for an entire day talking about not just um, theoretical stuff, but how you actually apply stoicism. We have a panel that's specifically about stoicism in practice. Then there's Stoic Week, which is an online course that thousands of people do every year. It used to be called Live Like a Stoic Week. And you, 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 you know, you do some readings, you do some practices, you do some journaling, you meet with other people. There are all these Stoicon X events happening all over the world. Some of them face to face, some of them online. And, um, then, you know, sometimes universities or places will have a Stoic Week thing. And there's this thing called the Stoic Fellowship. If people want to try to find a local meetup group, they can go to the Stoic Fellowship and it's got like a map of, I think at this time, over a hundred Stoas worldwide. Oh, wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So you can, you can, you can easily find groups for that. There's, um, similar communities for Epicureanism, um, for cynic philosophy, for, for all sorts of things. There's even a thing for Neoplatonists out there, believe it or not. <laughs> um, so, you know, that, I think that's a good resource too, because we, you know, we don't do our thinking as purely isolated, you know, if we want to use that ivory tower stereotype thing, you know, living in an, an ivory tower that we're the only inhabitant of. Um, I mean, you can do that, but, that's probably not a very effective way of doing philosophy. It's, it's cooler when you actually have some people to bounce ideas off of, right? And you can have coffee with them sometimes. Not not just not just interact purely in a classroom environment thing, but in a social way. So those are, I think you know you put things like that together: the primary text, the media resources, communities. Um, websites, and, and you've got the capacity to do a lot of learning that really wasn't available to us when we were, we were younger. Um, you know, then it was, you read the book on your own and, uh, people think you're That's a weirdo. Right. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. <laughs> you kids don't know how good you have it. No, it's a very good point. Absolutely. Well, there, there is a challenge that comes with it though. Sure. Um, which is curation, right? Right. Because it's, we we went from the like drinking out of the garden hose where um, you'd be out in the yard and you're thirsty and like a, a few drops are coming out and you're like waiting for them to be there to it's like a fire hose and it's yeah. on full blast. And how, how do you tell the good stuff from the bad stuff? That's right. Like, there's like a whole conversation you could have about that. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, with the with the mentioning so much there in the last couple of minutes of stoicism, Andrew, I think you had a great question. Yeah. about stoicism that you want to throw in. Uh, Andrew and I are both, uh, I guess you might say, fans of stoicism. Uh, I read uh, I read Marcus Aurelius every morning with my breakfast. Oh, nice. And uh, and, and certainly I've read Epictetus and Seneca and the rest as well. Yeah. Andrew is, is definitely an Aristotelian, uh, as I believe he self-identifies as, a virtue ethicist, uh, all kind of cousins of each other. So anyway, Andrew, yeah. you, you had a good question. Maybe this would be a good one to, to wrap us up with. Sure. So I think when I first started getting into Stoicism, I watched one of your videos. I think it's your philosophical development series and one's about Stoicism. And I've, I've noticed that you're, you've been making these videos about Stoicism, explaining Stoicism, your own journeys for the past few years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just like a, a just in the past year or so. But in this past year, maybe just because of me 
more getting into it, but I think I've seen a lot on social media, on TV even, and on, on the radio and even with my friends Publishing at world school, too. there's just been seeing publish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've seen a lot of interest in stoicism. Yeah. So I was wondering if you notice this yourself and, um, do you, do you have maybe a, a reason why you think this might be happening? Yeah. So that's actually a big question. There's been in academia, in both classics and in in philosophy, something that you can call like a stoic revival that goes back decades to people like Anthony Long, who, by the way, was a speaker at Stoicon just a few years ago. And he's a cool guy. I I got to meet him and his wife. He's the real deal, too, you know, Uh, which is always nice to find, right? When you you meet somebody and they, they talk about moral philosophy, but they're a jerk, that's a little disappointing, <laughs> you know. But yeah, Anthony Long and 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 other people who aren't necessarily Stoics, but thought that it was worth taking seriously, like Julia Annas or Richard Sarabji. Um, I will point out Lawrence Becker's A New Stoicism, very important book, very hard book because Becker is is a, a tough writer. Um, so that uh, first came out in 1998. And that played a major role. So in in academic circles, people were taking it seriously. And then people started, you know, writing things. Sharon LaBelle, who's one of the speakers at at Stoicon, she did her own like version of Epictetus's and Caridian with her her book that she wrote that, that looked at it from different perspectives. And there's a lot of popular, not necessarily academic, but not just um, not just popular literature out there that's been circulating around. Donald Robertson wrote about stoicism and cognitive behavior therapy. Um, and then it started drawing in other people, like you might have you know, seen Massimo Pigliucci, who was well-known for his work in the skeptic community. He's a guy, by the way, with two PhDs, PhD in biology, and then he decided to go back and do a PhD in, in, in philosophy. <laughs> And he, um, you know, he thought that stoicism had something to it. So he decided to start living like a stoic and studying people. And, uh, you know, he ended up writing some books that came out of that that are quite good. Um, so there's been a lot, there's been like a growing literature. I, I got interested in stoicism myself years ago because I was looking at, um, anger management stuff. I'm, I'm somebody who struggled a lot with anger and could see when I was studying Aristotle that philosophy had a lot of resources for helping you understand anger that went beyond what the typical anger management literature of the present based in psychology could offer. Aristotle actually was, was better on some topics than CBT people were. Um, turns out the Stoics had a lot to say about that. And so I, I got drawn into it probably about a, a decade ago. And I think there's a lot of people along the way who, who did that. I do want to give a shout out to, since you are interested in Aristotle, and I saw you perk up when I mentioned McIntyre. So <laughs> McIntyre in After Virtue gets the Stoics wrong. And, and he consistently does that. Um, Anthony Long has this great article called Greek Ethics After McIntyre and the Stoic Community of Reason. And the argument that he's making in there is he says, okay, McIntyre got the Stoics wrong. That's, that's okay. That's not that interesting. What's more interesting is that what McIntyre is sketching out about why Aristotelianism of the sort that he's talking about is such a great thing. That's also applying to the Stoic movement. So you've got two hmm. rival, um, not exactly the same movements, communities of moral inquiry that should be in communication with each other. 
and should be drawing upon each other without, you know, like just blurring into each other. And, and, and as, as Cicero actually thought, you know, Stoicism and Aristotelianism are basically just using different vocabulary to describe the same thing, which I think is wrong, you know. Um, <laughs> but these two communities, two philosophies as ways of life could be really drawing on each other. And guess what? A lot of people in the modern Stoic community and in the modern Stoicism organization actually are Stoicism, Aristotelianism, mix in maybe some other things as well, eclectics, including myself, uh, Tim Laban, um, Gabriel Galuzzo, and, and some of the other people involved in that. We are, we're sort of Ciceronian eclectics where we draw heavily on Stoicism and heavily on Aristotelianism. And then like in my case, you know, some, some dialectical philosophy, some, some existentialism and some Neoplatonist stuff. So that's, that's some, some, some background stuff. How has Stoicism started getting more mentions in other things? Well, you know, they're, they're popularizers who aren't really Stoics, but use some Stoic vocabulary and, um, they, they get a lot of traction. And then there's people doing, you know, stuff that's, that's closer to it. And, um, they've just been very good about, about, you know, putting stuff out there and people are finding uh, stoicism, stoic practices in particular, useful for making sense out of their lives. But I don't, I don't think that, that somebody should like say, oh, I, I have to get on team stoicism. I, I think it's better to like be eclectic and, and draw some things from, from this tradition and some things from this tradition in a rational way, which you know, can put me at odds with some people who consider themselves orthodox stoics. They, they, you know, they think you're not a, not a real stoic and so you shouldn't be listened to. Yeah, I really agree with that, actually. Um, the that I'm not the a real ecumenical stoic. sort of basis of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, if you, if you actually look at the stoic movement in antiquity, there wasn't an orthodoxy. Seneca himself right. says, we're not a kingdom. We don't have a, a monarch. You know, we get to pick and choose. Um, there were some Stoics like uh, Posidonius who took a lot of grief from people who thought that he wasn't a real Stoic, you know, because he was willing to take stuff from Aristotle and Plato. But, you know, we care about Posidonius and we don't care about these these schmucks who are criticizing him. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, my own life, you know, uh, I use a lot of Stoicism, but also there's aspects of existentialism, yeah, American pragmatism. That, uh, that that I incorporate into through my own personal philosophy and moral outlook on on life and how to live as well. See, I think that's a more reasonable approach to how to use whatever we want to call it. You know, tradition constituted rationalities, philosophies of ways of life. Um, why should you have to buy in as if you're joining some sort of club? Where once you come in the door, you can never you can never draw anything from outside, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's right. I I'm I'm curious in academia. Do this might be a side tangent, <laughs> taking us too far, so we can cut it off if we need to. But um, is is that a thing in academia where like if someone's a hardcore Stoic? I don't know if there's many nowadays um, in academia, but are they just so possessed that they won't? Um, um, They're just so diehard. Not in academia, um, because mm -hmm. Stoicism is still viewed 
you know, with kind of a jaundiced eye as, oh, it's that stuff that those people that are debasing philosophy, making it practical, you know, (laughs) so it doesn't have that sort of traction. It's more in like online communities and things like that. There's actually a a group out there that call themselves the traditional Stoics. And they think that like, if you don't believe in a providentially ordered universe, you're not a real Stoic. And and we had one come actually to our um, Milwaukee Stoic Fellowship and give a rant about why Massimo Pigliucci is not a real Stoic and and all that sort of stuff before he left. He drove all the way from Madison, which is 90 miles away, to come and deliver this little, you know, hit piece on somebody who's not even a member of that that community. Um, So it's more of the popular stuff. But there are a lot of places in academia, and hopefully where you're studying isn't like this, there are a lot of places where not just in philosophy, but in other fields as well, you can have like a, an orthodoxy and it, you're expected to like buy into it. And only that counts as, as philosophy for a while back in the eighties and nineties analytics were trying to push everybody who wasn't an analytic in their mold out of philosophy departments. Um, my, my mentor actually had to teach in uh, prisons in, in uh, Southern Illinois for about five years as they tried to phase him and the, the American philosophers because uh, we had a pluralistic department out of, out of the, um, the department. But I think a lot of that's kind of fallen by the wayside, you know, People are less concerned now with um, doctrinal orthodoxy and and more with uh, just holding on to their jobs. I think may, maybe it's it's a luxury of like having plenty of money and and safe positions that you can afford to purge people. You know. Well, Dr. Seidler, this has really been a really exciting and, and wide ranging conversation about philosophy in general. And it's been a real thrill for us to, to have you on the show. I know, especially for Andrew, but we're not done with you yet. It's time. <laughs> it's time to, uh, you've been very gracious in uh, saying that you'll join us over in the quote corner. So let's head okay. that way now. All right, everyone, welcome to the quote corner, a portion of our show where we take a uh, philosophy quote and discuss it very briefly, and then give an arbitrary rating on a scale of one to five stars. So here is our quote for this week, completely complete with without any context from our enlightenment friend, John Locke. He says, education begins the gentleman, but reading, good company, and reflection must finish him. So there we go, our quote this week from John Locke, uh, Andrew, how about how about you start us off? What do you think about that quote? <laughs> this past week, I'm. This is a little side tangent, but I'm doing a directed study on Aristotle's Ethics this semester, and I'm. I just keep thinking. I don't know if it's in the part that I just read, but I remember it from the Ethics that Aristotle's big into. Um, it's not just one thing that makes someone good. It's not just you know you you complete an action once. You have to habituate yourself into. Um, being virtuous. So that's popping back up into my head um, when you were reading that quote. Um, It seems to be true. I don't know anyone who's just like gone through education and then they've just been plastered, molded out as a really cool, good person, but could be wrong. (laughs) Could be wrong about that. I'll I'll delay my star giving until I, I hear what everyone else thinks. 
Uh, okay, so we'll, yeah, you're right, Andrew. We'll wait till the end for, our, for all of us to reveal our stars. Uh, Dr. Sadler, what do you think of this quote? Well, you know, if, when you first read it, you think, well, what is that education supposed to be if it doesn't involve reading, right? And reflection should hopefully be part of education as, as well. So, but then, you know, if you've read Locke's um, stuff on education, I'm I'm not actually not a big fan of his theory of education because it's um it's pretty punitive the way he views child rearing and stuff like that. So, but if you if you abstract it away from Locke and you think about okay, what would education be in this case? It would be like something like rote learning and the the type of training more than education than, than we give to kids in a lot of cases. Like my, my, my kids down in um, northern I Indiana, where it's a lot of teaching to the test, you know, and you don't get to explore things that you want to explore. Um, there's a whole story I could tell about that with my one of my daughters getting really angry about seeing that the tests that they had to take, um, there was an advertisement where anybody who had a BA could grade these tests or, or BS or whatever. And she was like, so you mean that somebody who doesn't even have a degree in anything remotely, you know, connected to these stupid tests that I have to take that keep me from being able to study the kind of stuff that I want to study in high school that, you know, this is, this is the, what's going on. She was furious about it. Right. But that is, I guess that, that's what education is for a lot of people. And so if that's the case, then the reading would be something like reading on your own and reading the stuff that you didn't get to and good company. Okay. Um, other people that are interested in, in what you're thinking about who can bring in ideas that you miss and then reflection. Yeah, that's, that's pretty important. So if we take John Locke himself away from the picture, I guess it's a pretty good, good saying. Yeah. That's kind of where I kind of, I landed on it, you know, taking away the whole tabula rasa and, and all that business with, uh, with John Locke. I think I, I'm probably just echoing what Andrew said, but the idea that it does take many things to create a, a holistic, well-rounded human being, uh, not just education, depending on what you mean by that. You know, we could get real picky and say, like, well, what what exactly does John Locke mean by gentleman? And uh, and what's included and in, in, oh, in baked yeah. into that particular yeah. term? Um, and, and exactly what is good company, especially like in the 18th century uh, and these types of things. <laughs> but, you know, taking at face value without diving deeply into all those issues. I mean, I think it's a good quote. Uh, I I like it. Do you think if we were going to try to use it like with students today that we should we should change gentlemen into something like well-rounded person or decent person or something that's both not gendered and also doesn't have the old-timey feel to it? Yeah, because, you know, if I think, you know, maybe what John Locke might have meant by this is, you know, a gentleman would have been someone who is, well, <laughs> is someone who... Uh, is well represents himself well uh okay. with others mm. gosh i'm not sure if that that makes a lot of sense but but yeah i do think it'd be interesting and i like to do this with really old especially with like you know stoic uh stuff is like let's try to reinterpret this particular quote yeah. with like modern language you know so i, I do wonder yeah. you know what would what would gentlemen be today what do you think andrew I don't really know. The first thing that I was thinking was just like cultured, but I guess that's not a very good, um, good, good yeah, it's way almost to do as vague, it. isn't um, it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is a well cultured person? 
it, it wouldn't be like, you know, the things where we have these programs where we, we so we're going to turn young men into gentlemen, which means like they're wearing suits all together. I mean, the parts that would actually be applicable is where they're doing public service or, you know, learning how to speak to other people in a way that's respectful. And right. Yeah. I mean, engaging. in John Locke's time, a lot yeah. of that would have been tied up in the ideas of etiquette at that time. Um, yeah. A, a, a man of society, how to letter write, you know, th- things, th- th- yeah. things like that, that we, they would probably call gentlemanly. Well, all yeah. right, well, let's give it, let's give it, <laughs> let's give it our ranking. Here we go. I'm going to give it drum roll, please. I'm going to give it a, Four stars. What do you think, Doctor Sadler? Well, I would give it three, but it's because I I'm affected by having read John Locke's stuff on education. Um, which <laughs> Boom! I wouldn't want to bring up a kid that. No, way, no, you know? no. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Shoot! Now I'm now I'm conflicted. Um, I'll go straight in the middle and go for a three point seven. <laughs> 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 all right <laughs> well there we have it i guess all right everybody that's going to be it for today's episode thank you so much for listening to this conversation i know we enjoyed talking with dr sadler so we really hope you had as much fun listening Absolutely. And we'd love it if you would leave a positive review and maybe, nope, nope, not maybe. I should just read the words. We'd love it if you would leave a positive review and hit that subscribe button wherever it is that you listen to podcasts so that you'll know when new episodes drop. And of course, pass it on to your friends uh, because they surely need a little philosophy in their life. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to tell us what you think of the show, have a question you'd like us to discuss, or even a philosophy quote you'd like us to rate, please email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com. You can follow all the philosophy on Twitter and Instagram and on our website at opendoorphilosophy.com. you find many things about the show, including our book lists and resources. As always, thank you to Kevin McLeod for the free use of music we use in the intro and outro. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. And remember, when your life seems in need of some philosophy, the door is always open.